As many of you know, uh, my family moved here from the East Coast uh, really about 11 years ago. And one of the unexpected surprises moving to the West from the East was how incredibly inexpensive Christmas trees are. <laughs> yes, it's Christmas in July. Now, now back East, you would spend, I don't know, well over $100, maybe $120, $140, to get a really measly little six-foot tree that just was sad. And, and then we moved out here, and all of a sudden we realized we could go out, if we, if we were willing to drive a little bit, we could go out to this one place, we could get a 15-foot, just majestic tree, and we have the ceilings for it, for $25. Oh my goodness. And of course, we're always up for a bargain, so that's what we did. We got this huge tree. We knew it would fit because of these big ceilings that we had. And we got it home and we realized, we have a problem. Because even though now we've got this great West Coast tree, we still have this little measly East Coast tree stand. (laughs) And... It just wasn't going to hold this tree up. Now, when, when you've got these little small East Coast trees, the, the tree stands back east, they tend, they tend to work by weight. They're just heavy. They're not that big, but they're really heavy, and they're heavy enough to keep that little tree from toppling over. But this tree that we had gotten was going to utterly overwhelm our little tree stand, despite the fact that it was so heavy. So what, what did we need to do? We, we needed to find a tree stand that worked on a different principle. Not the principle of weight, but but a different principle. And so we went out and got a Western tree stand. Now, they're not much to look at. Some of you know what it looks like. It's just a big hoop with a spike in the center. But here's the amazing thing about that tree stand. Even though it is much lighter than my East Coast tree stand, it is way more stable because it is so much wider in every direction. It effectively turned our tree, massive as it was, into a pyramid. And it just was not going to topple over. Now, if only it were that easy to find stability in our lives. Just got to trade out one tree stand for another. It doesn't work that way, though, does it? Life, your life, my life, it's so unpredictable. And it comes at us so fast. And it is always, like our tree, constantly, seemingly, on the verge of toppling over. I mean, one minute, everything is fine. And, and, And the next minute, we've been diagnosed with cancer or or there's something wrong in the ultrasound picture that we just got of our unborn baby. All all of a sudden, that job that I thought was going somewhere is gone and I'm unemployed. A pandemic hits. Boy, we know about that, don't we? And all of a sudden, all of our plans, whether it's like our family's plans for the year or our church's plans for the year, just thrown into disarray. 
riots break out downtown. And those small business owners that thought that they were on the verge of expanding are all of a sudden shutting down. I mean, this is the way life works. Sort of like that big earthquake that they say is coming. We know things are going to happen. It's going to be rough. But we don't know when it's going to come. It's going to, it's going to hit us unexpectedly, kind of out of the blue. And, and the question is, how do we maintain our footing? How do we keep from toppling over? When the shaking begins. As we continue our journey through the Psalms of Ascent, which is where we're spending the whole summer, Psalm 125 has an answer for that question. So I want to invite you to turn with me there to Psalm 125. If you're not used to using a Bible, just open up right to the center. You'll be in the Psalms. We're looking for Psalm 125. I understand that there are Bibles back in the pews, so if you're using one of the black Bibles that we provided, this is found on page 544. 544, Psalm 125. It is very short, and so I'm going to read all of it. Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It cannot be shaken. It remains forever. The mountains surround Jerusalem and the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forever. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous so that the righteous will not apply their hands to injustice. Do what is good, Lord, to the good, to those whose hearts are upright. But as for those who turn aside to crooked ways, the Lord will banish them with the evildoers. Peace be with Israel. Our psalm this morning is structured like a mountain, with each successive verse getting longer and consisting of more lines. So if you're really into poetry, we move from bicolons to tricolons to like quad colons. If you're not into poetry, don't worry about that. The point is, it starts short and it gets bigger and bigger as we move through. It looks like a mountain. It's actually divided into two stanzas. You saw that there, verses 1 and 2. The first stanza, verses 3 to 5. The second stanza, the first stanza declares our stability as God's people. The second stanza explains why. And I think the point of the psalm is abundantly clear. Our stability comes from trusting God's rule, not ours. Our stability as God's people comes from trusting in God's rule, not ours. We're going to look at this psalm, each stanza in turn. First, we're going to look at our stability, and then we're going to look at God's rule. And as we look at these two things, I want you to consider what it would mean for you today to find your stability in the Lord. So first, let's look at that. Let's look at our stability. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It cannot be shaken. It remains forever. The mountains surround Jerusalem and the Lord surrounds his people both now and forever. Just like a mountain, the point is at the top. 
right in that very first verse. Those who trust in the Lord are are like Mount Zion. Now, on more than one occasion, as we've gone through the, the songs of ascent, we've seen that our pilgrim has, has kind of lifted his eyes to the mountains. He's wondered where his help is going to come from in Psalm 121. And in Psalm 123, he lifted his eyes to the mountains, to Mount Zion, and he sees that God is enthroned there. there there's, there's confidence. But, but this time, he compares those who trust in the Lord to Mount Zion. There's a, there's a simile going on here. Now, by our standards, if you know anything about Mount Zion, it's not a very impressive mountain. It's about 2,500 feet, not even as high as government camp. But it was where God had placed his name. It is where God had caused his temple to be built. It is where he had said, I will be there in the midst of my people, planted like that mountain. Now, Mount Zion was, was maybe not impressive in height, but it was impressive in other ways. It was sheer on three sides, solid, massive, unmovable. For most of its history, the cities built on Mount Zion were literally unassailable because they only had to defend one small ridge by way of entrance. That's what God's people are like declares our psalmist. They cannot be shaken. They cannot be toppled. They are like this mountain. Then in verse 2, you see, he extends the simile. Jerusalem, which is situated on Mount Zion, was actually surrounded by more mountains. And those mountains were, were even taller than Mount Zion. Like, like, like sentinels. Stationed around the perimeter of Mount Zion, these, these other mountains, like the Mount of Olives, for example, these other mountains actually discouraged enemy attack. Uh, the biblical history and ancient Near Eastern history shows again and again that as people invaded Palestine, man, they would just wipe out all the cities on the plains, but then they would get to the capital city, Jerusalem, and all those mountains, yeah, they would say, forget it, we'll move on. It was a long, long time before Jerusalem ever fell to an invading force. God's people, we're told, are surrounded by something even more impenetrable than mountains. God's people are surrounded by the Lord himself, now and forever. Now, if you're surrounded by your enemies, you're in trouble. Right. But like the Levites surrounding the tabernacle, or like a mother's arms surrounding her child, protecting the child from the elements, to be surrounded by God as one of his children is the safest, most secure place imaginable. For his people, God is a perimeter that cannot be penetrated, cannot be breached. He's a, he's a, a shield that, that, that cannot be defeated. So I wonder, where are you looking for this kind of stability, this kind of safety? 
I'll tell you where I think you're looking, because I think it's where most of us look most of the time. We're looking at our ability to control for outcomes in the future. Right? I want to control for outcomes. I want to bring whatever I can do, I want to bring it to bear so that my life is not upset. So that things go the way I want them to go. I try day in and day out, and I suspect you do too, in different ways to control the future because it's the future that threatens to topple my life over. It's the future that makes things feel so unstable. How do we do that? Well, we try to control for outcomes. We try to make our own stability through amassing wealth. If I can just have enough wealth, I'll be good. Or, or power and influence, and that might be kind of absolute power in your workplace or in your family, or it might be the, the power that comes from being well-liked by everybody, being thought a great guy, a great gal. It might, it might come from putting your hope in the next election outcome. We just get the right person elected, life will be good. Life will be stable. Life will be secure. Or, or maybe, maybe it's a particular relational outcome. If I could just get married or make this marriage work. If I could just get my kids to be obedient or launch them out successfully. Oh, then life will be stable. Life will be secure. We look for stability, by trying to control the future, control the outcome in the future. We look for stability by trying to build our own foundations that cannot be moved. But, but just stop and think about it. I'm not going to ask you yet to think about your own track record. We'll get there in a minute. But, but how? How can anything in this life provide for stability for this life. Like, how, how would that even work? Uh, a Christmas tree can't stand itself up. It, it needs something outside of itself to make it stand and not topple over. Friends, we have to look outside this life for stability in this life. Otherwise, we're just building on sand. Stability comes from trusting the Lord God. That's what we're told in verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It cannot be shaken. It remains forever. Stability comes from trusting the Lord God who made you and who loves you. John Calvin observed, Whoever desires to be sustained by the hand of God, let him constantly lean upon it. And whoever would be defended by the hand of God, let him patiently repose himself under it. What's he getting at there? He's saying, oh, if you want to find stability in the Lord, if you want to find safety and security in the Lord, you're going to have to trust him. You're going to have to lean on him, depend upon him. Now, now many people don't like the, the talk of faith, faith feels irrational, you can't see it, you can't prove it. 
I want to suggest that faith is not at all irrational, but I do want to acknowledge that it's risky. Faith is risky. Trust always entails risk. I I mean, you see that in day-to-day life, right? We see that in marriage, right? right? You, You entrust yourself to somebody else in marriage. You can't control that other person. You, you don't know what's going to happen. They might let you down. Oh, but the stability that comes when we entrust ourselves to somebody else in the context of a, of a marriage is amazing. You see this in businesses, right? In business relationships. Oh, yeah, they're, they're contracts and you can take people to court. But at the end of the day, business works when one party trusts another party. Trust means depending on something or someone that you cannot control. But but when it comes to finding stability in this life, I want you to just think for a moment about your alternatives. If you're not going to trust in God, if you're not going to trust in him to bring stability to your life, What are you going to depend on? What are you going to trust in? Maybe maybe you decide you want to go the the, the Stoic route or the the Buddhist route, right? Stoicism and Buddhism both give the appearance of stability. You've never seen anybody more calm than a Buddhist monk. But consider how they got there. Through a radical detachment that denies that at the end of the day, anything even matters. Maybe you don't want to go that religious route. Maybe, maybe you are more inclined to kind of the, the postmodern cynical route. The postmodern cynic achieves stability in his life, not, not through the, the kind of stoic detachment, but, but a kind of ironic detachment from life that just assumes that, of course, everybody is utterly corrupt and utterly about power and utterly about their own self-interest. And yeah, that'll protect you. But it will corrode your ability to ever be able to trust anyone or anything. All all of these alternatives promise stability ultimately through, through isolation. But by, by walling yourself off and protecting yourself from anything that might be able to hurt you. But, but friend, at the end of the day, the cure is worse than the disease. Only God, only a loving and sovereign God can provide the stability, the safety, the security that you long for in your life. But it requires trust. It requires that you actually lean on him, that you actually depend upon him. I I think for most of us, that that risk, it's just, it's scary. It's scary, right? So we would rather trust ourselves. I might let myself down, but at least I've got no one else but me to blame, right? And I'll I'll deal with that hurt. But when all of our trust is in ourselves, when all of our trust is, is in our ability to more or less control for outcomes in the future, we 
We're just like a bird fluttering in the air, never able quite to land. Now, many birds were designed to do that, but we're not those birds. Our wings grow tired. We can't keep fluttering up there in the air forever. And yet we would prefer that fluttering in the air to the risk of fixing our minds and our lives on the rock of God's help. Christian, how does trust in God help when you're tossed about by by the various gales that come through life, when, when you're disoriented by things coming at you that you did not expect, when, when life even comes at you in such a way that, that, that you find yourself depressed, discouraged? How does trust in God help when the things around you and the things that are going on in your life are actually causing you maybe even to, to doubt? This is how it helps. It gives you some place to plant your feet other than on your feelings. You you notice here that the psalmist isn't drawing on his feelings about God. He's drawing in these similes and these images on the facts about God. He calls them the Lord. Not just God, not just Elohim, but the, the, the Lord, the God that met Israel at Sinai and entered into a covenant with them and guaranteed that covenant with his own oath, promising that he would never forsake them, that he would never cease to be their God. Eugene Peterson put it well, he says, the image that announces the dependable, unchanging, safe, secure existence of God's people comes from geology, not psychology. It's not about how you feel about God. Your your stability in this life, your security in this life is not about how you feel about God. It's about who God is and the promises that he's made. And what was the last promise that Jesus made before he ascended to heaven? I am with you always to the end of the age. He surrounds us now and forever. Christian, your stability is in him. It is not in your circumstances. Your circumstances are going to change. Things are not going to go the way you want them to go. But that change out there need not affect your Stability, your security, your settledness. Because you are in him and he is around you. So trust him. Do what Calvin encouraged you to do. Lean on him. Patiently settle yourself underneath his hand. When the kids go off the rails, when the unexpected diagnosis comes, when the relationship that you were counting on ends, 
When the path forward is unclear, Christian, that is the time to lean on him, to depend upon him. Trust does not mean waiting for everything to work out and then believing his promise. No, it means believing his promise, depending on his promise in the midst of all the uncertainty. Because you know that stability is found nowhere else. I understand that that begs a question. I've I've rooted it so far in in simply the, the nature of God and his promises. But why, finally? Why should we trust the Lord? Well, that leads us to the second stanza and the second point. It's because of his good rule. Our stability comes from trusting God's rule. Look at verse 3. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, so that the righteous will not apply their hands to injustice. Do what is good, Lord, to the good, to those whose hearts are upright. But as for those who turn aside to crooked ways, the Lord will banish them. With the evildoers. Peace be with Israel. Our, our translation, you might be using a different translation, but the, the, the one, the English translation that I just read to you, it leaves out or it leaves implicit uh, a really important word. It's the word for or because. That's, that's actually the first word of verse 3. We cannot be shaken. Because the Lord will not allow the rule of the wicked to remain over the faithful in the land allotted to them, land allotted to them by God himself. Now, there's an implicit contrast here. God's people are are settled like Mount Zion under his rule and in his care. But the rule of the wicked will not remain. It will not be settled. And the reason is that God will not allow that to go on and on and on, because if he did, even the righteous would be corrupted, we're told, applying their hands to injustice. Our our pilgrim, the psalmist, understands that in, in the words of John Donne, no man is an island. We all live in a historical context. And that, that cultural Social, political context actually constrains us. It tempts us. It defines for us what is possible and what's not possible, both in terms of success and prosperity, but even in terms of good that can be done. Now, as Christians, we can and we must resist the corrupting influence of wicked government and wicked culture. We are to be in the world, but not of it. But we also need to understand that we are in the world. Yeah, we're not to be characterized by the world, but we are in the world. We simply cannot live as if we are floating above the fray, completely untouched, completely non-implicated in everything that's going on around us. That's just not possible. And to think that we could do that is to fall prey to the 
really the, the, the mistake that fundamentalism made. To think that we could separate ourselves so much from the world that the world wouldn't affect us. Friends, that's not possible. What's worse, the forces and pressure of Babylon, to use the language of Revelation, will wear some of us down, maybe even many of us. We are affected by the air we breathe and the friends we keep. We are frail. But the psalmist knows that not only are we frail, he knows that God knows that we are frail. And so he, that is God, will put limits on what our faith must endure. We don't know what that meant for this psalmist. We don't know when this psalm was written. It might have been written under one of the particularly wicked kings of Judah. It might have been written when Israel was under threat from outside power like the invasion of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. It might have even been uh, written post-exilic under Nehemiah or Ezra. What, What we do know is that the history of Israel makes us realistic about ourselves and our own condition. Under wicked government, under wicked pressure, whether that's official government pressure or just the pressure of culture, even the faithful are affected. Idolatry becomes more acceptable. Compromise and and, and syncretism begin to seduce with the promise of getting ahead in this world without abandoning everything that you believe. I mean, isn't that the message that we heard again and again this spring as we work through the book of Revelation? As, as John warned the Christians who were under pressure, don't compromise. But he knew the pressure was real. So what do you do as, as one of the faithful who finds themselves living under the the scepter of the wicked. And and you know it's not going to last forever, but it sure does feel heavy right now. What do you do? You do what the psalmist did. You pray. The psalmist prays. Verse 4, he prays with confidence that the Lord would exercise his reign, that he would do what is good to the good, those whose hearts are upright. And and that he would banish those who turn aside, literally those who topple over. There's a there's a kind of contrast going on between verse one and verse five. Those who topple over into crooked ways. Now, who are the good? The good are not the sinless. Romans chapter three, which quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, declares that no one is good. Jesus says the same thing when when somebody comes to him and says, good teacher, and he says, whoa, 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 why are you calling me good? Don't you know God alone is good? And what's in view here is not the sinless. What's in view are the upright in heart. Not the sinless, but the faithful. Those who are trusting in the Lord's rule rather than their own. And and what our pilgrim does is he, he prays. He prays for the removal of wicked rule and wicked influence over God's people. He asks that the crooked, those those who claim one thing and live another, might call them hypocrites, 
that, that they would be banished from the people of God along with the evildoers, those who don't even make a pretense of following God and obey him, obeying him. Notice what he's doing here. He's not asking for a reward for being good. He's not saying, Lord, I've been so good. I had all my quiet times this week. You know, and I didn't give in to that besetting sin that I did last week. But this week was a really good week. So, so Lord, like, be good to me this week. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for my reward. I'm ready for my goodies. No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that give me my reward because I've been good. He, he's praying that the Lord would demonstrate the Lord's goodness by blessing his people and judging the wicked. And he's confident that God will. And so he ends the psalm with a statement of peace. Peace be with Israel. This is how peace, the word is shalom, well-being. It includes this idea of stability. This is how peace will be with Israel, with all of God's people, not through our amassing prosperity by any means, not through gaining raw political power so we can defeat our enemies, not through engaging in political compromise so that people will leave us alone. No, the well-being of God's people is rooted in God's rule. And friends, that rule was established once and for all and displayed for everyone to see at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning or if you're watching and, and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand why God's reign, why his rule through Jesus Christ is good news for you. You, you, you may think that, that you are in charge of your own life, that, that, that you're ruling. That, that's, that's certainly what Adam and Eve thought when they decided to rebel against God in order to be like God, to be their own masters, their own kings. But here's the thing. In reality, your self-rule is at best an illusion. You, you know that you can't control your own life the way you want it. I talked about, we'd come back to your track record, right? You've tried. You, you, you've given a lot of effort and maybe a lot of years to ruling your own life, to trying to control for those outcomes, to try to make things work out. And you know, in the quietness of your heart, that you've got a pretty lousy track record at it. So, so self-rule doesn't actually really work. What you might not know is that not only is your self-rule an illusion, in this fallen world, you are under the malevolent rule of Satan. That, that, that spiritual person and power whom Jesus described as the prince of the power of the air, the, the ruler of this world. And that ruler who holds sway in your life if you are outside of God, that ruler does not intend your good. To the contrary, he intends your destruction. Because he knows that on the last day, 
if you continue in your rebellion against God, that God will banish you forever to hell along with Satan, and that is his goal. Here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ took on flesh and came to this world in order to break the scepter of the wicked, your scepter and Satan's. On the cross, Jesus Christ broke both scepters, yours and his. He defeated Satan at his own game by actually taking your place. Dying the death that you deserve as a rebel against God's good rule. And and then he actually got up from the dead. He got up from the dead because he didn't have any sin. He was not a rebel against God's rule. He was accomplishing God's rule. And so God raised him from the dead. And he has now ascended to heaven and sits on the throne of heaven where he now reigns. Reigning triumphantly. And if you will repent of your rebellion and put your faith in him, his triumphant reign will be a reign for you. Through faith and repentance, he will transfer you from the kingdom of darkness that meant your eternal death into his kingdom of light that means your eternal life. This is what we're about to celebrate at the, at the end of our service today uh, as, as we baptize Ellie and Megan. Uh, baptism doesn't save you. But, but baptism is very much a, a declaration of change of allegiance. Uh, when we baptize someone, they are, they are publicly declaring their allegiance to King Jesus. And they are publicly repudiating their allegiance to their own self-rule and the rule of Satan. And in that change of allegiance, There's a change of citizenship and kingdoms. There's a movement from darkness to light. And it is a change that Jesus accomplishes through his rule, his reign of love in you. That's what we're inviting you to to today. If you're not a believer, we're not inviting you to stoicism. We're not inviting you to cynicism and detachment. We're not inviting you to a bunch more rules. We're not inviting you to try to do something so that you can earn a reward. We are inviting you to simply change your allegiance from self and Satan to Jesus Christ and to know in that change of allegiance the greatest love, the love of God himself, which promises to surround you forever. A Christian, your stability in this life, and not just yours individually, but, but our stability, our, our peace in this world as, as a local church, it is grounded in the very same thing that I just explained in the gospel. It is grounded in God's commitment to your good and to our good. But it is in this world. Right? On, the, on the way to the cross, Jesus prayed, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Christian, even now, God is answering that prayer. This is not a promise of political triumph. It's not a promise of Christian nationalism. America 
is not and never has been the land allotted to the faithful. We may be the land of the free, but we are not the land that is referred to in Psalm 125. At one point, that land was a particular geographic boundary in Palestine. But ever since Christ, the people of God are not contained to one ethnicity or one geography. Rather, God is building his kingdom by calling men and women from every nation and tribe and language to the very ends of the earth. The the land that we look forward to, the land where we know the reign of the the scepter of the wicked will not reign, that land is the new heavens and the new earth, a, a kingdom that cannot be shaken as we heard about in Hebrews chapter 12 earlier. That's where our ultimate hope is. But I want you to know that even now, God is exercising this faithful, good reign over the church And in the church. How does he do that? How is he doing that in your life and in our lives? Well, well, he does it through the preaching of his word. He reigns, he rules through his word. Because his word comes through the regular preaching, what I'm doing right now. And what does it do? It reorients us. It shows us the right way. We we, we begin to like veer off the path and it pulls us back. It says, all right, this is reality. So prioritize hearing his word and then obeying it, trusting it, leaning into it. But Christ also exercises his good reign for us, not just through the preaching and teaching of God's word, but through the fellowship of the church. Boy, if it was just my speaking the word to you that we had to depend on every week, it'd be a long week. You know, I mean, we're good today and tomorrow, yeah, yeah, but but Tuesday, what did the preacher say? No, no, no. It's in the fellowship of the church. As day in and day out, we speak the truth and love to one another. As we build one another up in the gospel, that Jesus Christ is exercising his reign for your good. So are you building your life into the church or you're building your life around the church? I don't mean some some. Bible study that you, you pull together with some, some Christian friends in your neighborhood, that's all well and good. I, I mean this local church. Because this local church, these are the people that are committed to you, that have covenanted with you through thick and thin. Are you building your life into this church and allowing this church to press into yours? You know, another way that Christ exercises his Reign, his good reign for us, is through corrective church discipline. Now, I know church discipline is a hard topic, but when we put somebody outside the church who claims to be a Christian and yet has turned aside to crooked ways, we are declaring that God's word is true, is to be trusted and obeyed and believed, but we are also declaring in love to that person, you are deceived. You have deceived yourself and you are in danger of deceiving others. And we don't want you to be deceived anymore. We want you to come back into the light and into the truth. But it's not just through corrective church discipline. It's also through formative church discipline, which we often think of as teaching. But I think in this psalm in particular is prayer. When we gather to pray, 
God, through Christ, is exercising his good reign in our lives. What did, what did Paul tell the Philippian church? He, he told them to, to put aside their worry and instead to pray together. It's all plural there in Philippians 4. And what will happen when the church gathers to pray rather than to worry? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do you want to know what the second most important, the second most beneficial thing you can do every week after gathering with God's people on Sunday morning to hear God's word preached and then to speak it again to each other? The second most important thing you can do? Come back at five and pray with us. Pray with us as a church. Now, I know you're probably praying at home. That is wonderful. Keep it up. But this is God's people praying. This is corporate prayer. And I know, believe me, I've been doing it for well over 20 years now. I know it is a pain to come back out at 5 p.m. to pray with God's people. I get it. It messes with nap schedules. It gets in the way of whatever plans you had that afternoon. It, It makes it a little more stressful for getting the kids ready for school the next day, and it's really inconvenient for some of us in terms of dinner. I understand all of that. I live it. I never don't experience it, okay? But this is where Jesus reigns in his people. Because he said, where two or three gather, there I am with you. When we gather to pray, Christ reigns. And he exercises that reign for us and in us. So come back at five and pray with us. And God's rule in for the church does not mean that it will always be blue skies and calm seas. Jesus promised that we will have trouble in this world. He promised that the world would hate us and persecute us because it hated and persecuted him. But he also promised that he had overcome the world. And so we need not fear. The the apostles taught us that trials would come and, and that every temptation common to humanity would attend our steps. But they also taught us that with every temptation, the Lord will provide a way out and that even trials are opportunities for joy because we know that through them, God is testing our faith in order to prepare us to what? To receive the crown of life. Calvin said, God will take care that broken as we may be by affliction, we shall not forsake his service. God knows that we are frail. He has set limits. And he exercises his reign in and through the church for our good. My family learned that the hard way. Seven years ago, a few years after we'd moved here, one of our kids got deadly sick. And that sickness did not go away for quite a long time. Some of you were here for that. And you know the trial, the chaos the fear, the uncertainty that God took our family through. And I found myself in the midst of that, wondering, God, why are you doing this now? Just a couple of years ago, we were in this amazing church where everybody loved us. And you know, like two years in, not everybody loved us here at Henson. 
We knew lots of people and they knew us and there was all this support and here we barely know anybody and we're trying to get to know this church and why, why? I mean, not even why did it have to happen, but why did it have to happen now and here and in this way and at this moment? And I struggled with that. I struggled with that for a couple of years. But as this church prayed for my family and as my wife and I prayed, I came to see two things really clearly through that. God needed me to learn that it wasn't just this church that needed me, but I needed this church. I needed you. Because it was through this church, this church, not some other church, this church, that God was teaching me how much I needed him and could depend upon him and could find stability in him and in him alone, even though it felt like the bottom was dropping out of my world. Where are you looking for stability? You know, all of your own efforts, all of your own efforts are ultimately no better than that wimpy East Coast tree stand that I loved all the way out here. You, yourself, you simply cannot bring enough weight, enough control to keep your life from toppling over. But God can. His reign, His rule through Jesus Christ It's like the base of that magnificent mountain that we see. It's actually that way. The base of that magnificent, oh no, it's that way. Uh, Of that that magnificent mountain that that I I can't get enough seeing of, Mount Hood. I mean, can you imagine somebody toppling Mount Hood over? No. This base is miles wide. In Christ, you are surrounded by God's love. Like a ring of mountains that cannot be penetrated. Friends, stake your life on that foundation. Center your life in that love. And you will find that those who trust in the Lord cannot be shaken. Would you pray with me? And take just a moment and think about the ways that maybe you've been trying to to create stability for yourself rather than trusting in God. Just confess those things to him. Lord God, we confess that we make these two mistakes over and over and over again. We, we think that we can control for the future. We think that, that we can make our lives stable. And we doubt that you are enough. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see you high and lifted up. To see you seated on the throne, reigning and ruling through Jesus Christ for our good. And that you would then give us the faith to trust in that rule. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.